Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education by Kate Colbert and Joe Salustio with contributions by Elvin Freitas is now available for pre-order on Amazon. Get your Kindle edition or your softbound book. It's going to be amazing. It's your time to add up on the Ed Up Experience podcast, where we make education your business. This is Elvin Freitas, co-founder of the Ed Up Experience, back with you again. And I'm super pumped and excited because I have a guest that has been 20 years in the making. I mean, there's a whole story behind it. I'm not going to tell everyone. So if you want to know the story behind this, feel free to DM me via LinkedIn. But there is a whole story that I have. But it's been for me like a 20-year adventure to finally get her on. And I'm super excited. So uh, without further ado, let's get her on. Uh, let me introduce you to Dr. Cynthia Osborne. She is the founder and executive director of the National Prenatal to Three Policy Impact Center, which is home of the 50 state prenatal to three state policy roadmap and the prenatal to three policy clearinghouse. Cynthia, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm, I'm so glad to be able to have a conversation with you. Thank you so much for being here. Again, this is such an honor and a privilege. And, and I believe you're also a faculty at uh, Vanderbilt University's Peabody College of Education. Is that correct? That's right. I'm an education um, professor of early childhood education and policy at Peabody. Okay, great. So let's dive right into it. So tell us all about what you, do you do and how do you do it? Well, like you said, I have the privilege of directing the Prenatal to Three Policy Impact Center. And we started the center about three and a half years ago uh, based on all that we were learning about the science of the developing child. Yeah. And that science told us that the prenatal period and the first three years of life are the time when the brain is growing the fastest and the most sensitive period of learning and development. And I can talk more about that, but we were fascinated by everything that we were learning about this early brain development. And what we wanted to do was to say, well, if we know what kids need early on in life, what are the policies that states can implement that will actually help to create those conditions in which children are thriving early? And so as an academic, we turned to the most rigorous research that was available. And we did comprehensive reviews of dozens of state level policies to understand really what is it that works. And we relied on the most rigorous evidence that's available, um, causal studies or quasi-experimental designs to really get a sense that if a state were to implement a particular policy, what impact would that have on early development um, and uh, development, the, the outcomes that would affect them positively across their lifespan. And we identified 11 policies mm. that states can implement. And those are the ones that we use as a basis for a roadmap. And we not only identified what works, we are tracking states' um, progress toward adopting and implementing these effective policies and strategies. Not only do they have it, check, but what is the generosity of the policy? What's the reach? Mm. 
And how is it affecting families in an equitable way so that we know that those who need it are actually benefiting from it? Um, and so that's what we do is try to identify what works and to help states to adopt more of these effective policies. Okay, so I wanna zoom in a little bit. So um, let's go through the maybe the 11 uh, if we can quickly. And then just so you can outline them real fast. And then I, from there, let's see if there's some ones that I kind of want to dive deep into. So if you could just outline them real quick, the, the 11. Absolutely. So what we really learned was that it takes a combination of broad-based economic and family supports, as well as targeted interventions to create the system of care for kids. So the broad-based economic and family supports include things, um, Medicaid expansion, mm paid family leave program, yeah. a minimum wage that's at least $10 an hour, mm -hmm. a state earned income tax credit that's refundable and at least 10% of the federal credit, and reducing the administrative burden on different policies to allow folks who are eligible for those benefits to actually access them. And we focus on SNAP because that's such mm -hmm. an important mm -hmm. yeah. benefit for families. And then these six strategies, these more targeted interventions include comprehensive screening and connection programs. So identifying what uh, needs families have and connecting them to the services that they need. Uh, child care subsidies, allowing families access to affordable, high quality care. Uh, Evidence-based home visiting programs, group prenatal care programs, early head mm. start and early intervention. Yeah. Program. So that, that's the big 11. Okay, got it. I want to zero in on the um, parental leave uh, because I myself have done a little bit of research in this area. One of the things that I have yet to find, and, and hopefully you can help me uh, understand this better, is that um, for expected parents, those who are going to uh, have kids and, and, and the partners are, are pregnant and now they go to visit you know have prenatal visits and i think i did some research like it could be nine you know to 15 different visits within a normal pregnancy so from what i understand when when these folks go to these uh, visits um employers and i think there's no national law that allows all of these employees to go to these visits um and not having to worry about uh, uh, losing out on pay. So is that something that you've been able to find um, in your research? So you're right that there is no national paid time off either yeah. during the pregnancy or following the pregnancy. Our only uh, release time is unpaid through the Family Medical Leave Act. But there are 12 states that have adopted a paid family leave program now that's at least six weeks um, not all of them only seven have implemented it so far but um, that typically only applies for families after the um, birth of the child and uh -huh. sometimes it's both parents sometimes it's just the birthing parent um, not the the partner especially if the partner isn't married Mm -hmm. um, the um, Washington DC, however, has prenatal leave. And so it actually has um, 
a paid prenatal leave to allow um, parents to be able to access those prenatal uh, care appointments that we know are so important for the developing child, the well-being of the family. Um, but you're right that there are a lot of reasons that families can't access that, and particularly um, the partner. Yeah, and, and I want you to let me know if I'm crazy here, because my thought is, why wouldn't every state have this prenatal paid leave to do these doctor's visits? Because as a man, and I've, I've researched, like I said, this is a 20-year conversation I've been having, waiting to have. So excited you're here. So, I, you know, I've done research on this, and it just seems as though, especially for partners, that male partners with their female partners, so number one, to go to these visits, attend them to support for the pregnant partner, right? This is the emotional support, which is huge, but not only that, but to hear as a man, to hear, and I have, you know, I have children myself, to hear the heartbeat of that child for the first time, you know, to the mom, it's just, it's just mind blowing. So you would figure that these uh, partners would be more engaged uh, uh, with the pregnancy, uh, maybe less likely to uh, walk away uh, when it, you know they don't go to these uh, prenatal visits, and then, in essence, as you know, there's that continued support, and so then that helps with the mother, that helps the child, and then I'm sure you again. Just tell me if I'm crazy here. Is there any research that shows that I'm on the right track, or am I going crazy? Well, there is research that when dads are involved during the prenatal period, that they're much more likely to be involved after the child is born. Mm. The, the research is clear, I should say, that if the dad isn't involved during the prenatal period, he's not very likely to be involved afterwards. But we know that many partners, many fathers are not able to, like you said, get off of work to attend yeah. visits and so forth. It seems like the one in which he is the most likely to show up is the it used to be 20 weeks, it's even earlier now, but it's where you, the gender reveal occurs, where you can yeah. really get a chance <laughs> yeah. to see, you know, everything now sometimes in 3D and color, yeah. um, unlike, you know, when my kids were, when I was pregnant with my children. Um, but it, it, there's also new research to show that during this transition to adult, uh, to parenthood rather, that fathers are changing um, the composition, of, like their, their brains are actually changing as well. Their hormones are changing. Wow. They are going through a lot of pregnancy mm -hmm. changes. Um, and things such as postpartum depression in fathers is actually a very real thing. Um, the levels of testosterone change, they have kind of baby brains. Um, and it, they're thinking, you know, a lot of it is biological as a way to bond the father to this child. But we aren't recognizing enough of how important the role is that fathers play in the prenatal period. Um, to, you know, we know that healthy mom equals healthy baby. And yeah. often healthy dad can help healthy mom and help healthy baby. Yeah, exactly. No, it's, it's so true. It's so vital. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you is, <sighs> With your work, um, how do I feel like people just, they don't care. Maybe I'm using the right, the wrong language here, but it's every time I bring this up, people seem like say, oh, that's nice. Oh, I didn't know, oh, wow. But then they just don't care enough to act and do something. So with your work, 
obviously you're helping states create policy. I'm so, uh, so you have people that are listening to you and they care, but how do we get the rest of the world, the population to care about this work? Because to me, I think this is pivotal. I think that, to, like I said, you know, during uh, when we first started uh, talking about uh, this episode, I think that's where lifelong learning begins. I think if we teach the expected parents about the idea of lifelong learning, then that also leads into uh, the child. I think the parents are the, are the child's first teacher. So um, so I just, it's so vital to me. It just makes so much sense to me, but I don't think many people think that way. What do you think? Well, I think that there is a lack of appreciation and understanding of how important those first three years of life are, beginning prenatally. Um, we have kind of created this idea in our country that kids need to be ready for school, meaning that they need to be ready to learn when they show up at kindergarten or maybe no. now pre-K. No. Well, the truth is, is that we're born learning and our brains are the only organ in our bodies that are not fully formed at birth that they are actually expecting input from the environment. And it's what we provide in that environment in those first three years that really seals our trajectory um, for our future. That if kids are raised in safe and stable and nurturing warm environments, that that leads to optimal brain development, um, especially what we call the prefrontal cortex or the mm -hmm. part of the brain that really leads to executive functioning, uh, reasoning, uh, critical thinking, all those things that make you quote unquote successful in higher education, but across the lifespan. Um, when kids are exposed to trauma and chronic adversity, such as um, exposure to poverty or violence or lack of stimulation, because maybe the parents don't even know that they play such a crucial role yeah. in yeah. this mm -hmm. um, time period. Yeah. That we leave a lot of children's potential on the table, that they're not um, creating those neural connections in that part of their brain that set them up for lifetime learning. And it, I, there's been so much more research to really illustrate the activity in the brain. There's a, more than a million neural connections are happening per second in those first three years of your life. Wow. And after that, it slows way down. Your brain will um, grow, you know, increase by two thirds of its original size within those first three years. Um, and we use the term that 90% of your brain development occurs before age five. And- that, Wait, let, well, hold on. That's just mind blowing, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, let's yeah. stop there. This, this is, let, repeat that again for everyone in the back. Say that again. <laughs> yeah, crazy. no, I mean, you know, 90% of your brain's growth occurs before age five. And after that, it's a slow, steady increase of you know, learning and brain development. But if we don't get it right in those first three to five years, then it makes everything else more difficult. Learning, paying attention, uh, social relationships, all of those things that make us able to achieve while we're in our K-12 or <clears throat> our higher education experience. It, that groundwork is set before we start school. And in those first three years is when the majority of it is set. 
and which is why this topic is so relevant for folks who focus on higher ed. Yeah, because um, you know you have you have eighteen years to see who's coming your way um, for those folks who are in higher ed, and they should care a lot about what's happening to those kids um, who are being born today because those struggles that those kids will face today will manifest themselves in, in the 18 years when they see them. Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education by Kate Colbert and Joe Salustio with contributions by Elvin Freitas is now available for pre-order on Amazon. Get your Kindle edition or your softbound book. It's going to be amazing. Yeah, so true. And one of the things that I have this crazy theory that I think an institution of higher education should be a lifelong learning center. And I wanted to ask you, based on my theory, are there any states um, that are doing uh, doing it well, that are uh, examples of higher education institutions that are working with um, different agencies or um, institutions, businesses, whoever, to help and to number one, understand the necessity for higher ed to be involved in the prenatal to three um, space. And are there any examples, any programs that you are aware of, which state it's happening in that we could give our listeners a, a, a taste of? It's a great question. And the higher education can be such a centering force for a community. Um, and there are a couple of examples that I think really stand out. So in Tulsa, Oklahoma, for over a decade now, they have been doing what they call these two generation programs where the moms are attending usually community college, but some sort of education program that's associated with helping them really develop their human capital. Um, learning new skills and acquiring education. And simultaneously, their children are in high quality pre-K and, and childcare arrangements. And that two generation where both of the parent and child are getting this um, enriching learning environment is leading to better outcomes for, for both generations, right? Because we also know if parents have higher levels of education and more experience can get better paying jobs that reduces the stressors on families that allows them to engage with their children more and improves kids' outcomes early on in life, which lead to lifelong learning. So you can see that cycle of how, yes, yes, how yes, that yes. matters. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there's other um, communities that are using higher education to uh, train the next generation of childcare workers and other caregivers, and that that is both improving the quality of our of our workforce, if you will, mm -hmm, but it's mm -hmm. leading to better outcomes for children because when their caregivers have a better understanding of children's development, um, when they, when the caregivers themselves have better resources and um, psychological health, all of those things um, are not only better for the adult, but they translate into better outcomes for the children. And so 
um, when it, it's primarily community colleges, I would say that yeah. have taken mm -hmm. more of this role, um, mm -hmm. but but it, it can be such a crucial one. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so tell us a little bit more uh, about your work because I've been focusing on prenatal because I'm just fascinated by that. But tell us a bit more about your work once the child is born. Uh, what exactly are you tracking? Uh, what is a success and how far along are you with with doing the tracking? Um, what is the, it's a lot of questions, but <laughs> what's, what's the ultimate goal when you start to, uh, you know, once they're born, you start to track them and what is it that you want to see happen? And what are the policies that you think need to be, that have yet to be in place that need to be in place in the future? Yeah, well, all of those are great questions. Um, so the way that we have thought about all of this is, we, like I said, started with that science of the developing child. And that told us, uh, we were able to translate that science into eight policy goals. We call them prenatal to three policy goals. And those include making sure that families have access to the services that they're eligible for, that families can both work and care for their children, that there's stability in their resources, including food security, housing stability, and income stability that children are born healthy to healthy parents, taking into consideration mm. both their mental and physical health. Yeah. That parents have the knowledge and skills of their children's development so they can engage in those nurturing relationships that we know are key to healthy brain development. Also, when kids are not with their parents, that they're in these high quality learning environments. And importantly, the last goal is to make sure that when kids do have a developmental delay, because many will, that we get them the services that they need right away so that we can get them on track for optimal development. So those are our eight policy goals. And for each of those goals, we identified a set of two to four outcome measures that we're tracking over time to really be able to illustrate to states that these are the things that you can look at to know whether your kids are doing well today. And all of them, all of these outcome measures are predictive of future health and development. So we know that they lead to better outcomes in school in earnings and relationships and so forth. And they include things like um, being read to daily, being in yeah. these nurturing environments, um, yeah. uh, the, making sure that they're getting their proper developmental screening, number of children living in poverty, um, parents who are, are depressed and so forth. So there's 20 outcome measures. And then states can use that information to say, well, all right, where are we doing okay? And where are we lagging? And when they see that their kids are not doing as well as they should in particular areas, and we've created this framework that says, well, here are the policies of those 11. Here are the ones that actually will improve those outcomes. So that's what we're helping each state to work with. Their, they each have their own roadmap um, mm. so that they can determine what their policy goals are and then implement the effective policies that will actually change the, those outcomes, improve those outcomes. Um, and then we're constantly seeking information about new things that work. We're uh, conducting our own evaluations. We are following others across, you know, other scholars across the country who are conducting evaluations. 
So we don't want to just stop and say, we know it, this is it. We really want to know um, over time what more states can do. So, um, that's, so are you also looking at other countries and, and their work in the prenatal three spaces? And if you are, are there any countries that you can think of and say, this is a model that the U.S. needs to get to? For the actual roadmap itself, we're looking at state level policies. And so it's mostly US um, centric. Okay. However, we've learned a lot from other countries about what is possible. And the, there are many Scandinavian countries that mm -hmm. um, yeah. we've learned about the importance of play during uh, childcare. We have learned uh, the importance of uh, providing resources directly to families, um, similar to what we did in our child tax credit this past year um, that helped to offset the huge expenses of having infants and toddlers. Um, we've learned how offering childcare widely um, that is both high quality and affordable will lead to a higher take-up rate, especially among those uh, you know, working families who could really benefit from some sort of subsidized care. Um, we've learned a lot from our European counterparts, but there's not much that we have actually implemented here. And mm. studying our European counterparts is a little bit difficult because in the United States, a state will implement one policy, but not all of them at one time. And so you can mm. kind of say, oh, well, this is the impact that that particular policy has on kids' outcomes. But in places like Finland or Sweden, you know, they all of this takes place in free higher ed, free healthcare, free childcare, mm. um, basic child allowance. And so it's that combination of all of those things that add up to create these better outcomes uh, for their kids. But they, you know, from life expectancy alone, that they're higher than we are, but in terms of the number of folks who are working and graduating from college and so forth, you, you see that they're making strides in front of the United States. And it's something that I've spoken to a lot of business owners and, about and there's a growing interest among business owners to invest in these earliest years because they see the advantage that it can play for um, countries and you know they want to know that their next workforce is going to be highly skilled. Yeah, it, that's a perfect transition into my next question. I was thinking. Um, if I'm a president listening to this from higher education, I, I'm a college university president, I'm listening to this and, and I'm thinking, what can I do uh, to get involved? You said invest and maybe there's a different way to, to get involved and, and who at the state levels are you, are you speaking with? Is it government officials? I mean, in part, if you could kind of pinpoint because maybe some of these presidents, are, well, maybe I could get in contact with them and kind of figure out what well, we can work together. And I think you know where I'm going. So yeah. what, what could they do? Well, I think that our university leadership has a really important sway within state governments. Now, to be fair, a lot of university leaders, a lot of universities 
have seen their budgets slashed and yeah. maybe don't feel as if they have quite as much sway in the um, political process as they once did. But they speak to their alumni, they speak to other leaders in the community, and they can be champions for investing early. It will have immense payoffs for mm-hmm. who it is mm-hmm. that's entering into their um, mm-hmm. you know, schools in uh, subsequent years. Um, what we do is at the end of the day, we want our information to be a resource for elected officials who are the mm-hmm. ones who vote yes or no on mm-hmm. these sorts of investments. But we recognize that there's a lot of routes to them. We're not advocates. Um, we never are, are saying you should do this. We're educators, but we provide our information to advocates, uh, to other stakeholders who have strong relationships with elected officials um, and directly to elected officials who have seen that this is an investment that they would like to champion. Um, and so we're dealing with all different types of stakeholders, but um, elected officials will listen to their constituents and they will listen you know, a lot to their business community. Um, and the, those who are needing to see that we have a, a strong workforce, a strong yes. um, society. And, um, and so I think that those leaders need to um, speak up. That's, and you know, I love those business leaders that you mentioned that see the pipeline, they see what the um, long-term investment, the return on investment will be for their businesses, but for the country as a whole, you know, for society in general. It's just, it's that long-term thinking mindset. I, it's, I'm a big fan of that and that's beautiful. And um, it makes sense that you're working with policymakers and those who are elected and get that. And, that. and I'm glad that uh, you talked about how in higher ed, Canistas, I think, uh, see the long-term investment, kind of like the business leaders as well. And uh, you mentioned the community colleges because they're the, the centers of the community. And so there's a lot going on there. So uh, this has been fascinating, great conversation. And, and thank you so much. So let's just wrap up with the last two questions. Is there anything that we missed uh, we didn't mention today, we didn't talk about today you want to cover? I didn't ask you, maybe you want to talk about? That's question number one. And question number two, which I'm very curious to hear from your point of view, what do you see as the future of higher education? Well, I would invite any of the listeners to visit pn3policy.org. That's where our roadmap is. It's also where we have a clearinghouse of dozens of state-level policies so that you can see what works, what the evidence says. Um, and I would also invite folks to contact us to share this information with any groups that you think could hear how important early childhood is. So mm-hmm. I really appreciate that opportunity. The future of higher education is, is in our hands. It's what we make of it. I've been, mm. um, in higher education in lots of different capacities. I have uh, you know, an undergraduate degree, two master's degree, a doctorate degree, postdocs, and then I've been a professor for the last nearly 20 years. So I have lived wow. my life in higher education mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and know that it is what has affected me in a very positive way. Um, 
And I know that it takes sustained investment in higher education in order to make it uh, successful, that we need um, students who are coming to higher ed who have not had those opportunities before. Um, I'm a first-generation uh, student, and that opportunity really changed the trajectory of, of my future. But to just make the connection that part of the reason that it is often so difficult for um, uh, families of color, for families of lower socioeconomic statuses and so forth, to um, navigate this very complex system is, you know, one, there are obviously barriers that are put up uh, that exist right now today. Yeah. But a lot of these families are families who struggled in these earliest, their children struggled in these earliest years, that they are, um, were not as prepared for um, their K-12 experience or what they would be expecting to see in um, higher education. And that if we can start early, and like I said, you know, basically start to think, I'm, an, I'm a college president, I have 18 years to work with these kids before they show up at my doorstep. And then imagine what we can do when they're here. If we could start to think of that framework where higher education is just part of this lifelong um, journey of learning, that that can make a huge difference as to who gets the opportunity to be there, the value that they bring to higher education, which is so rich, and what higher education can then provide to the rest of us. Oh my God, I love it. <laughs> that was awesome. Yes, it's just, oh, you know, that whole idea of diversity, equity, inclusion, and uh, access, belonging, I mean, all of that starts much, much earlier, not when they get to college. It is so much earlier, prenatal, even with the expecting parents. There's so much work that can be done there. And if those who are listening can see that, what yes. Cynthia was talking about, what you were talking about, Cynthia, it's just, it's, it, it, it almost makes me mind blown. Why wouldn't anyone want to start there? You know, it, it just, why would someone say, no, nah, we're not interested? What do you mean you're not? You don't see the potential here. Anyway. So box a little bit, but um, this was amazing. Thank you so much, so so very much, um, Cynthia. This is fantastic. Um, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you just heard from Dr. Cynthia Osborne. She is the founder and executive director of the National Prenatal to Three Policy Impact Center, which is the home of the 50-state prenatal to three-state policy roadmap and the prenatal to three policy clearinghouse. Well, I had a great time speaking with you. Thank you. I really, really appreciated this opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on. We appreciate your time. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just had up. Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education by Kate Colbert and Joe Salustio with contributions by Elvin Freitas is now available for pre-order on Amazon. Get your Kindle edition or your softbound book. It's going to be amazing.